This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our full back catalog is available as a podcast. Just search on Women at Work and me, Laura Zarrow, and be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as mine, at Laura Zarrow. So whether we're talking about social media or our most personal interactions, many of us understand very little about how influence works. We doubt our own capacity to influence others and overestimate our ability to resist other people's attempts at influencing us. Either way, influence is much more complex, potent, and surprising than many of you think, which is why I'm so excited about today's guest. Vanessa Bonds is a social psychologist and professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. She's also the author of an amazingly engaging, accessible, and brilliant new book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters. Vanessa holds a PhD in psychology from Columbia University and an AB from Brown. Her writings appeared in the New York Times and Harvard Business Review, and her research has been featured by the Wall Street Journal and NPR's Hidden Brain. Um, so with that, Vanessa, welcome to Women at Work. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So you've clearly spent a lot of time researching this topic, um, yet the book feels incredibly timely. What made you write this book now? Yeah, so the basic idea behind the book is that, you know, in contrast to all these sorts of books and articles and seminars we see out there about how to gain influence and sort of tricks and tips and bells and whistles uh, that will give us more influence, that we actually have a lot of influence. We just tend not to be aware of it. In fact, there are these psychological biases that cause us to miss situations in which people are paying attention to us modeling what we're doing, listening to what we have to say, and actually feel obligated to do things that we ask them to do. And so I really feel like if you look around at so many of the things that we're seeing right now, a lot of it can be attributed to this tendency to underestimate the influence that we have. We see situations where people are basically yelling at one another. And one of the things, <laughs> I, argue, one of the things I argue in the book is that that can really come from underconfidence, right? We yell when we think no one's listening. And in fact, people are listening to us more than we tend to realize. On the other hand, we see people, you know, potentially doing things that they don't really want to do because somebody asked them to. And we see this, for example, in the Me Too movement uh, and some of the stories that have come up, people who have agreed to sleep with bosses or go on dates or find themselves in situations that they would rather not be in, but they feel too uncomfortable to say no. And what my research shows is that when we're asking people for things, we often don't realize how hard it is for them to say no. So there's all sorts of ways right now that we can see all the time that this failure to recognize the influence we have by asking people for things, um, when we state things, uh, can really lead to some of these problematic dynamics. I'm so glad that you've shared that because as I was reading the book, I was 
you know, you bring us into these concepts in a very gentle way. Um, you really create a foundation of understanding for the reader and you keep building on it. And then it happens kind of midway through that, you know, early on, I'm thinking, wow, could this be behind sexual harassment at work? Could this be behind the different evidences of racism? And then like page 100 land, we're there. Why did you structure the book that way? Why didn't you just come out and say, I'm going to explain to you why we fall for this? Well, I definitely, I think you're right. I feel like I kind of think of the book as two books. There's kind of like the first half, like the happy, more typical, like self-helpy kind of book where it's like, hey, you have all this influence. Isn't that great? And then the second half is like, okay, let's think about what that actually might mean in these more sort of problematic cases. And I mean, for one, I structured it that way because those are truly two of the takeaways, right? There is mm -hmm. a positive takeaway and there is a really kind of more, dark or, you know, takeaway where you just want to be a little bit more careful with your influence. So those are two genuine sorts of takeaways. And of course, I thought if I started with the more happy sort of story, people might come along with me for the more difficult story. Although, as you said, I tried to make it pretty gentle. I kind of think of it as, you know, the sugar before we take some of the medicine. Um, but yeah, I try to sprinkle in some sort of humorous examples of underestimating our influence, even in, in negative ways as well. I think you did a really great job with it. And I actually want to start with something that's kind of light and fun, um, because I think part of the message that I got from the book is the complexity of influence, both it's pot, like and, and like any other thing that's potent, it can be used benevolently or malevolently. And both uh, whether it's we're doing it consciously or unconsciously and also in how we receive it. So, you know, my daughter and I'll be out and about in the world and I will just stop strangers on the street and say, I love your shirt or those are the coolest earrings I ever saw. And she looks at me sometimes like I have three heads and it's a miracle that these people just haven't run away screaming. And yet they always seem kind of delighted. Um, and you talk about this in the book. So explain like how offensive am I? How likely it is that these people might actually appreciate this? I love that story because my mom does that as well. And even now in my forties, I'm like, mom, but now <laughs> I have the research to show that the moms are right in this situation. So we actually have done some studies where we have had participants come into the lab and we tell them, you're going to go out and just give random strangers compliments. And before they go and do that, we say, how good do you think those compliments will make the people that you approach feel? And we also ask them how bothered, how annoyed do you think that those people are going to feel? And what our participants say before they go out and do this, they think that, you know, it'll make them feel okay. And they actually kind of worry that they're going to bother these people. But then we have them actually go out and do it. And then they give these people a survey and these people fill it out put it into an envelope and hand it back to our participants so that the participants can actually see it. The envelope is sealed. You know, they don't know what the ratings are. And then they bring them back to the lab and we compare what our participants thought the people would feel to what the people they approached actually say that they felt. And it turns out that people greatly underestimate how good someone feels when you compliment them and overestimate how annoying and bothersome that person is going to feel. So as the, you know, kind of irrepressible complimenter, I really love that one. It also is a suggestion, you know, I think it was a great early reminder in the book about how we 
And what we expect someone's reaction to be is often very different than what their reaction really is. Um, and much later on in the book, you frame a concept of giving and taking perspective. That I, A, the way you explained it, Vanessa, I so loved it. It really crystallized it for me. So would you explain it to the audience and maybe in relationship to what the researchers anticipated and what they found? Sure, absolutely. And I think a lot of it comes down to what you were saying, that we have these intuitions in our heads about how we're going to come across to another person, about you know the impact we're having on someone else. And what a lot of these studies do is they test that out and see if that intuition is correct. And often it is incorrect. And one of the reasons for that, as I talk about later on in the book, is that when we try to imagine how somebody else is feeling in a given situation, we try to take their perspective. And many of us have been told that that's a really, you know, good sort of exercise to try, you know, you should try to take somebody else's perspective. But the thing is that taking someone's perspective really means trying to figure out what they feel by searching our own heads and our own ideas about what that person is like, about what we did, about, you know, stereotypes we might have about that other person. And in fact, we never actually get out of our own head. And for that reason, we may make mistakes when we try to figure out like what somebody else would feel in a situation. And so what some researchers, uh, Nick Epley and several of his co-authors have shown is that a better approach instead of taking perspective is getting perspective. And the way they talk about that is basically actually asking people how they feel, that that actually gets us out of our own heads. There's a lot of research showing that people are often quite willing to open up and tell us how they actually feel about something. And then we're not sort of basing whatever judgment we have about what they're feeling on what we think they're feeling. We're actually finding out from them what they're feeling. So if we really want to understand, let's ask. The, I think the impulse, though, to take perspective, um, where we're trying to presume, one, there's that, that thing, presumption, it's dangerous, but at the same time, isn't it often motivated by an attempt to be empathetic and compassionate? How do we navigate where the threshold is there? Yeah, I think we do try genuinely, right? We really do want to understand somebody else, but we are always limited by our own experiences. And one thing that the research shows is that if we've had a similar experience to somebody else, but it kind of took a different turn or we learned something different from that, we kind of put our own ideas of what happened onto that other person when they might've had a very different experience. So for example, if I went through a divorce and it was really difficult, right? I might see someone else going through a divorce and think, oh, they must be having a really hard time around this or that or the other thing. And maybe they're having a very different kind of amicable divorce. And I, whatever assumptions I have about what they're feeling are based on my own experience. And I'm not really asking them what they're actually feeling. And so as genuinely as I might wanna connect and share my experience and empathize, and that's all good and we should, you know, do that when it's appropriate. At the same time, we can't assume, as you said, or presume sort of that we know exactly what somebody else is feeling. So Vanessa, in this, these various dimensions of influence, you know, by talking about, you know, overtly, can we give somebody a compliment? Will they appreciate it or think we're crazy? Um, There's something interesting in the book about a passive way that we can have influence that we don't realize. Um, as an art lover and artist myself, I was particularly taken by the idea that when we say view a painting or listen to music together, what we think of as a private act in a public place, we actually may be influencing other people and ourselves? 
Yeah, this is based on some really interesting work by Erica Boothby. Um, and she basically shows that when we experience something with another person, that experience tends to be amplified. So for example, if I'm eating a piece of chocolate and I know that somebody else is eating a piece of chocolate as well, I am kind of imagining not only how I'm experiencing it, but I'm also imagining how that other person is experiencing that chocolate. And it just makes the experience that much more intense. So if I'm sort of admiring a piece of art, as you were saying, and I, someone else is standing there looking at it with me, I'm kind of wondering what's going on in their head you know, how they're experiencing it. And it's making me that much more engaged in the experience. And one of the interesting things is that Erica Boothby also finds in some other studies is that other people are doing that to us more than we realize, wondering what's going on in our minds. So simply by being present, by being with other people, we're kind of getting them to think about, oh, what is she experiencing? What is he experiencing? And that is impacting how they're experiencing something. So does that mean that especially now that we're trying to be back together, even when we're masked. Um, does that suggest that there can be real changes in how dimensional our experiences or how rich they are, particularly when it comes to things like learning and working and trying to make new things happen? Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, of course, right now we're talking right now about sort of the presence of being with another person and it can be kind of difficult right now. Uh, but I do think there is something in the research that suggests even being masked in the same place is going to benefit us to the extent that, you know, that really does build more social connection and trust and things like that, because when someone's actually present, they're sort of top of mind. And then we're really kind of wondering about them and paying attention to them in a way we just don't in the same way when we're over Zoom or over email. I also, one of the things I love about this is this is a dimension of influence that's not about changing somebody's mind or making them do something that you want them to do, but it's recognizing this impact that we can have on each other that we might not be aware of. How can we tune into that more? Is Because um, I have to imagine that it has both an upside and a downside for us. Yeah. And this is actually a really important point because a lot of us, when we think of what influence is, we have this idea of what it means. It's kind of this formal attempt to change someone's behavior or change someone's mind to stand up on a pulpit and make this kind of grand attempt to influence someone. And that is a form of influence, clearly. But in the book, I talk about all these other types of influence and basically impacts that we have on other people. So just impacting their experience, for example, uh, making them even think more strongly about something they already believe. We often think influence means I have to change someone's mind. Sometimes we don't change someone's mind, but we kind of solidify it. And we might not see that and realize that we actually did impact this person, but it wasn't in this dramatic way that we kind of associate with influence where it's like, oh, and then they told me that they changed their mind. And so a big sort of uh, takeaway that I really hope that people take from the book is to be mindful of all these other ways that we impact people. It's not just those times where you're sort of formally and effortfully uh, sort of trying to impact somebody, but it's also all these subtle ways, you know, little comments that we make, um, times we show up or don't show up, those things matter as well. So I wanna explore this in terms of advice giving. Um, and, you know, because that's a place where we may think we're, you know, we want somebody to change in a way or benefit their own work in a way. I'm giving advice to my daughter all the time, which I'm learning 
much, not always appreciative of. Um, what should we be keeping in mind about where we have influence when we're trying to accomplish something um, and we may be getting in our own way and making it so that somebody really doesn't hear us? Yeah, advice giving is a really interesting domain where we have a tendency to be a little too assertive or avoid giving advice altogether. So this is a place where we underestimate our influence. We assume someone's not listening, right? Uh, and so because of that, you know, we may just really sort of uh, hammer our advice home and be super assertive about it. You know, you've got to start doing this. You've got to quit smoking. Come on, you've got to start eating more fruits and vegetables, whatever it might be. And we kind of really push a little too hard, kind of assuming that the other person isn't going to listen to anything other than a pretty strong push. On the other side, we also see that people, if they assume that other people aren't going to take their advice, just don't even bother giving it. And so there's some really interesting research showing that younger people think that older people won't be receptive to their advice. And so when you ask younger people, even ones with expertise in a domain that older people don't have, for example, maybe I'm an expert in negotiations and I could give advice to someone else who's older than me, who's about to go into a negotiation. We are hesitant to give that advice because we don't think that they'll appreciate it. But in fact, even older people are appreciative of younger people's advice. So underestimating sort of others' receptivity to our advice can lead us to be too assertive or just not give it at all. But isn't there a positive flip side, which is how receptive people will be when they're asking for advice? That's right. Yeah. So another thing is when we ask for advice, and this is um, some research by Alison Wood Brooks at Harvard, she's shown that we tend to think we're going to be judged harshly for asking for advice. But in fact, people really enjoy being asked for advice. They feel like you must think I'm really smart if you're asking for my advice. And they don't really judge us. So altogether, you know, there are cases where unsolicited, unsolicited advice is obviously not appreciated, but there's so many more cases where advice giving and receiving is actually more appreciated than we tend to think. So another area where I found the dynamic um, really surprising and interesting was when you talked about audiences and the effect that the audience has on the speaker. Can you tell me more about that? Because as somebody who's been on both sides of that equation, I find that I feel like I'm enormously affected by the audience, hopefully for the better and not the worse. How does that dynamic work, especially when we're not aware of it? What's so interesting about that is that when you picture a scene, right, with one person at the front of the room, maybe they're at a podium or they're holding a mic, we assume that is the person with the most influence, that if you were to look at that scene, the person with the influence is the person at the front of the room. But in fact, the audience has so much more impact than we tend to realize when we're the ones in the audience. Anyone who has ever stood in front of a room, uh, you know, when I give a lecture, for example, or one of the things I talk about in the book is comedians testing out material for an audience. Anyone who stood in front of a room knows that whether you're lecturing, whether you're giving a talk, whether you're, you know, trying out bits, you kind of don't want to bomb. And right. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what you're doing. So you're kind of looking at the audience and paying attention to their reactions. And when you can tell they like something, you kind of tune your message to that. 
when you can tell that you're losing them, you kind of change a little bit. And so the audience is really shaping the way you behave and the kinds of messages that you're giving in a way we don't tend to realize when we're in the audience, that we actually have that kind of power and impact over the speaker. So this is another case of where by showing up, by actually being there, even keeping our mouth shut, we can have more influence than we realize. That's right. And I can say, you know, as a professor, just looking out at the audience of my students, I see them doing so many things that I can tell they don't think I see them doing. And that really <laughs> does shape how I'm interacting with them and the things that I say. And one other sort of takeaway from that is that there's something called the saying is believing effect. So once we state something because we think our audience is going to like it, then we kind of believe it a little bit more. You know, we see them smile in reaction to whatever we said. We see, oh, it got, you know, a good reaction. And now all of a sudden I believe that a little bit more. And so in that way, the audience is also shaping not only the messages that they're being exposed to, but also what the speaker starts to think about those messages. That's kind of huge. So Vanessa, when you described that, when I was reading that section, I was thinking about a particular political figure who um, has an amazing ability to create these kind of ripple effects of belief. Um, and it feels like that dynamic of stating it, the speaker believes it, and it has this ripple effect. So this could be potent both as a good thing and a bad thing. So as individuals, how do we handle this responsibly? And how do we process what we see happen around us? It's, it's kind of funny. I mean, I will, I assume I'm allowed to say that I imagine the political figure you're thinking of is Trump and indeed, <laughs> who I talk about a little bit in the book as well. Um, it's almost cartoonish how much his rallies embody exactly what we're talking about right now, right? That he will put something out there and then whatever the response is, he decides that's what he believes. So I heard from someone recently that he had a rally where he told people that they should get vaccinated and then his audience booed him. And immediately, you know what's gonna happen. Like right. it's gonna think vaccination is less important. He's gonna stop talking about it so much. So the audience is really shaping what he's saying, right? And so it does help us to sort of see that it's not just what's happening on stage. It's also what's happening all around us. It's how people are reacting to these things. And so that we can create a perception um, that is actually not anchored in reality and can get really dangerous. In the book, there's also another place where you talk about the difference of what we perceive and what's really happening. And this is on the flip side of that coin. I think it's particularly germane to women, which is that we may be overly worried about our own presentation. Um, that we're awkward, we're not likable, that um, somebody would notice that I tripped on my words or made a bad joke or my grammar wasn't right in a sentence. How real is that and how damaging is that? There have been so many uh, studies and papers that have come up in the past several years on this finding and it just seems really robust. We seem to assume that other people are judging us for things more harshly than they are. We think that people are paying more attention to things that we find embarrassing than they actually are. 
we're a lot harder on ourselves than we need to be when we walk away from an interaction. So anytime you've kind of said something you thought was stupid in a meeting and you've walked away cringing and you're obsessing about it, probably nobody else is actually paying attention to that thing that you're obsessing about. And actually, and I have to tell you, there are things I think of from years ago that still haunt me. I know it's wild. Me too. Let I mean, them go. Yeah. This is one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was because I find the research on this so reassuring because I have the same thing. You know, I do this all the time. And what I tell myself is I know the research says that I am being harder on myself than anybody else's being. And that in fact, anytime you walk away from an interaction, sort of doing this postmortem of all the mistakes you made, all the things you said that were weird or how much you talked too much, the other person actually liked you more than you think. And there's actual research showing this. Uh, so one of the interesting things though, is sort of, there's not a lot of gender differences in that research. So it seems that both men and women make this error, but what's so important for women is that it might mean something different to women than to men, because we are expected, you know, based on stereotypes and prescriptions of society, we're expected to be communal and likable. And anything that suggests to us that maybe we're not as likable as we'd like to be is that much more damaging to our self-esteem. And so the same kind of effect that we all have, where we all kind of think that we were more awkward than other people sort of saw us as, could be particularly damaging for women. And that damage, it, and I appreciate that you're pointing out that we're conditioned to have it affect our self-esteem. At the same time, we also know that women are also expected to be more likable. It's, um, and so we are on guard for it in both fronts, but in either case, we need to cut ourselves a little bit of slack. Yeah, absolutely. So as we were in the first half hour, you were helping us understand kind of these building blocks, different ways of understanding influence and how it works and um, connecting the dots between that and some unbelievably important issues in our experience as women in the workplace and as people in our society. Um, so I want to start with another one of those foundational elements and then connect the dots again. And it's the power of the ask and this really surprising dynamic of what happens if you ask people just randomly for some kind of wacky things like, hey, I never met you before, but I'm going to jam. Can I borrow your cell phone? What happens when we do that? Well, amazingly, they say yes to us more than we realize. So this is uh, a longstanding research program I've been doing uh, for now over 15 years where we have participants come into the lab and we send them out and we instruct them to ask strangers for all sorts of different things. And before they go out, we ask them, how many people do you think you'll have to ask before you get a certain number of people to agree? They go out and they actually do it and they report back to us on how many people they actually had to ask. And we've had them do things like ask people to fill out a survey. Okay, that's pretty tame. Uh, and then we've had them ask people to borrow their cell phones, as you mentioned. We've had people ask strangers to walk them basically three city blocks to find the gym on campus, which is kind of underground and hard to find. And so they would say, you know, I can't find the gym. Will you walk me over there? And people would walk them all the way across campus. We've had them ask for charitable donations. And in each case, uh, people tend to overestimate how many people they'll have to ask before someone will agree by about twice as much. So to give an example for the surveys, people thought that they would have to ask 20 people before five people would agree to do a survey. They actually only had to ask 10. So people are really agreeing with these requests about 
50% of the time. So I brings me back to memories of my selling Girl Scout cookies. And I was freaking terrified, really scared to go knock on doors and make this ask of people. What's going on under the surface, which if, you know, studies for 15 years of studies show we're going to be more successful than we ever imagined. Why are we so afraid? Yeah, I love the example of Girl Scout cookies because many of us can relate to that. And, you know, you're kind of mentioning it from the side of the asker and you can imagine what it's like for the Girl Scout, you know, and the mom or whoever's with them to go up and knock on someone's door and all that anxiety about the ask, right? We have all this anxiety about asking someone for something. But then what I like to do is kind of flip that scenario around. Now imagine you're in your house and your neighbor from down the street is knocking on your door and their little girl is in front of you asking you to buy Girl Scout cookies how hard is it to say no, right? Oh my God, that adorable, brave young lady is out there. I could be trying to resist, but I have to buy the cookies. That's exactly right. And we forget that. We forget what it's like to be on that other side when we're the ones doing the asking. And so in a, an asking situation like this, both parties have all these insecurities, but we're so focused on our own and whatever side we're on that we forget about the other parties. So when I'm asking, I'm super worried about being rejected. I'm worried about imposing on somebody. You know, I'm worried that I'm, I'm being annoying or I'll damage the relationship in some way. When I'm the one being asked, I'm worried about many of the same things. I'm worried about, you know, looking like a bad person if I say no. I'm worried about damaging the relationship from my end if I reject the other person. And I find it really awkward to try to find the words to say no. I mean, what am I going to say? You know, uh, no, I don't eat cookies or something. You know, you have to come up with some. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so now let me talk about a more insidious and darker aspect of this. Because it's one thing when we're thinking, oh, I want to support these young Girl Scouts and their entrepreneurial activities. Not to mention, I have some fans of Thin Mints in the house. Um, but there's a different way in which, and I've experienced this myself. Um, and these are also some of the things that come back and haunt me at times where I've wanted to say no and have found it really, really hard, even when it's a matter of my own self-protection. And I think a lot of women experience this. And as you were saying in the beginning, victims of sexual harassment report this all the time. What's behind it? Yes, exactly. So, you know, if we start with the scenarios where you're asking someone for a favor or something totally innocuous and they feel like they can't say no, it doesn't hurt anybody. Everybody walks away from that interaction feeling pretty good. You know, even if you agreed because you couldn't say no, you still feel like you did something good. But there are plenty of other situations where someone's asking us for something and all those same, same factors are in play. It's awkward and uncomfortable to say, no, I don't want to damage the relationship. Maybe that person has some sort of power over me. Maybe they're my boss. I don't want to reject this person and risk sort of offending them in some way. And so people sometimes agree to things that they really don't want to do because it's even harder to say no. And we have some studies uh, done in a similar way as the ones we were talking about earlier where we have people go out and ask for uh, uncomfortable things or things people really would rather not do. So for example, we have participants go out and ask people to vandalize library books. And in that case, we find the exact same dynamics. More people agree than people tend to think. And it's because it's so hard to say no. They don't wanna do it. They say, I don't think we should do this. You know, We're gonna get into trouble for this. Isn't this wrong? But they feel so uncomfortable actually coming out and saying no, that they go along with this thing that they, feel uncomfortable doing. 
So I want to probe this a little more deeply because this is really um, important in ways that I don't think a lot of people understand. So even when we're interacting with strangers, they will be disinclined to say no to us when they should. So it's one thing when you can feel kind of benevolent, oh, you're in a jam, I'll lend you my cell phone, or oh, you're lost, you can't find the gym, I'll walk you there. But now you want me to vandalize a library book? But that, so if I'm understanding this, that fear of standing up and embarrassing them or ourselves in the process will inhibit us from doing the thing that we know is right or best for us. Am I getting it? That's exactly right. And I think it's easier for us to remember how hard it is to feel rejected, right? It feels really bad to be rejected. It's pretty easy to bring to mind all those terrible feelings of being rejected. And we forget what it's like to be on the other side, to be the one who has to do the rejecting, who has to come up with the words and the awkwardness of being in that position, even when it's a stranger, right? So even these strangers kind of uh, are having a really hard time coming up with the words to say, you know, no, I'm not going to do this. So on the flip side, there are bad actors who um, seem to understand this and know this, who are kind of preying on that tendency to um, have their way, literally and figuratively, um, is part of it. And one of the things that we see is with forms of harassment and abuse, people are getting groomed or conditioned or, and it escalates over time. How does somebody, what should, can we watch for to see when that kind of, kind of almost planned pressure and coercion is happening? the repeat exposure of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it is really important to make this distinction because my work shows and I talk in the book about situations where people genuinely don't realize the pressure that they're putting on somebody else. And the fact that they may be complying, for example, to go on a date or do something more, you know, out of feeling that social pressure that the person doesn't necessarily recognize. And so that seems more innocuous, but as you said, there are clearly also sort of bad players who are aware of this dynamic and take advantage of it. You know, you can imagine the Harvey Weinsteins of, of the world, mm -hmm. the classic example. And in that case, you know, so much of what makes it hard to say no are situations in which you are face-to-face -face with someone, situations in which, you know, you have to make a decision right away and so I'd say as much as possible, if you can put distance between yourself and someone who's asking you to do something that you feel uncomfortable with, the better. So making a request, you know, over email, if someone's pestering you face-to-face, -face, you know, for a date, you could say, and you, you feel really uncomfortable and even worry that things might go bad if you said no in that moment, you can say, you know, I, let me think about it. Why don't you send me an email? buy yourself that space, buy yourself that time. Also, I mean, get it in writing. Um, <laughs> right. That's one way you can sort of handle a situation like that potentially. But also it goes back to what you were saying before by being outside of their physical presence. We lessen their influence on us and therefore our own autonomy. So I'm going to say with a fair amount of sad confidence that we're not going to change the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. However, one of the things that I also appreciated that you noted in your book is where people can be having a damaging effect on others, but may not always realize it, where the person who holds power to hurt someone else may not be aware of it. So I'd love to 
explore that a little bit. And so let's start with why is it that in a way, it seems like the more power we hold in a situation, the less sensitive we become. Is that true and why? Yeah, it's interesting because you would think that when you're in a position of power, you would be super aware of the influence you have. You know, I'm in this position of power. Of course, people are going to do things for me. But in fact, research has shown that there are these psychological effects of having power that do make us less sensitive. So one of them is that we're less inclined to spontaneously take the perspective of other people. Uh, and that's, you know, partly just because we don't really need other people quite as much. When we're in a position of power, we're the ones in control of the resources. So we don't need to kind of get inside the heads of people who are in lower positions of power to get ahead or get the resources in sort of an evolutionary sense, right? There's so we don't, yeah. There's an amazing woman, Laura Liswood, who wrote a book a while ago now called The Loudest Duck. And the way she explained it in that book was that um, the person in power is like the giant elephant. Everybody else is the mouse. The elephant does not have to worry about somebody stepping on his tail, but the mice certainly do. So they exist with hyper awareness of the person in power. And the reverse is true in terms of their needs being met. Is that the kind of dynamic you're talking about? That's exactly right. I love that story. I've never heard that before, but that is such a perfect example of what it's like to have power. Um, and then there's also research showing that people in positions of power, you know, just like you don't have to worry about sort of the mice all around you, you don't worry about, you know, whether the things you're doing are appropriate or you don't, you know, sort of conform to what the situation is calling for or what everybody else is doing. You kind of just do your thing. So if you're in a position of power and someone asks you to do something you don't want to do, you feel much more comfortable than someone who's not in a position of power just being like, no, I'm not going to do that. The problem is that means you think other people are also going to feel that way. You forget we sort of overextend our own feelings to other people. And so what that means is when you're in a position of power, exactly when you have the most influence over people, when people feel the most uncomfortable saying no to you, you are the least able to recognize it. You don't realize how hard it is for people to say no to you. And you feel like, you know, you would just say no if you didn't want to do something. So you just float something and see if, you know, someone else will do it or agree, or, you know, if they don't want to, they'll just say no. So it's an example of where saying no is actually a dimension of privilege. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when that, the person with power says, well, if I say, Vanessa, I'm going to ask you something you don't have to say yes. But could you answer the next question for me? How likely is that to really make you feel like you don't need to say yes? I think it's a start. It suggests <laughs> that you recognize, you know, this power dynamic, but I, I definitely don't think it's enough. And I think people do that a lot, thinking that that's all they have to do is just add this one little line. And what that really shows is sort of a lack of true empathy of what the other person is experiencing that, you know, just a little throwaway line that says, oh, you don't, you can say no if you want, you know, they don't really feel like they can say no. And so you have to take more steps to kind of demonstrate that they really can say no. So again, when we're in a moment like that, where we wanna say no, um, but by virtue of our position, the power structure, um, the dynamic, we're, at, we're afraid to do that. Um, is there a way that we can gain more power in that moment? Or once again, does it go to like get through the moment alive and find a way to isolate ourselves to say no? 
I think that's, that's usually what I, I recommend is kind of, as you said, get through that moment because the hardest part is being face-to-face and coming up with words in the moment. And so one thing I talk about is if, you know, you know, uh, something might be coming up, if you're kind of aware someone might ask you for something, and this gets back to what you said before, you know, if someone is kind of grooming you and you kind of know they're going to, they're going to be back asking for something, be prepared because a lot of it is the difficulty of finding um, a script sort of to say in the moment or finding the words to let someone down Mm -hmm. in the moment. So as much as you could sort of prepare in advance and the other way to prepare is to give yourself that, that space. So ask someone to put it in an email, ask them to come back later, basically get out of that moment. And often that means not saying no in that moment because that's often very hard for people and then figure out how you're gonna say no after the fact. So now when you're on the other side of that equation, let's presume you're not necessarily, you're one of those redeemable people. You may be pressing in ways that you need to learn not to, but you can learn. And what you're taking in is what you're seeing in front of you are smiles on people's faces. Um, smiles are not always just a simple symbol of happiness or acceptance. When are they a byproduct of a different kind of discomfort and how can we learn to tune into that? That's right. There's some interesting research on sexual harassment in interviews done by Marianne LaFrance. It's a classic study where unbelievably she was able to get through her ethics board, a study where she was actually able to sexually harass people in an interview, have basically the interviewer make these inappropriate comments. And (laughs) what happens in uh, several of her studies is that People who come in for an interview, women, uh, are being interviewed by a male interviewer who says these inappropriate things. And if you ask them hypothetically, you know, what would you do in this scenario? And so she asked another sample of women, what would you do? They say, I would storm out of there. I would, you know, say that was inappropriate. I would feel really angry. But when she actually put people in this situation, again, unbelievably, um, but she did it. And people actually reported feeling afraid. And most of them just answered the questions, even though they were inappropriate. And most of them didn't say anything and didn't storm out. And what they actually did amazingly was they smiled and nodded. And it turns out that there's different kinds of smiles. There's smiles that are genuine. And then there's smiles uh, that are more about appeasement. And so when someone's kind of smiles with their whole face and you can tell they're actually happy, right? That's a nice real smile. But when kind of just smiling with their lips and not their eyes, then they might just be appeasing you and basically trying to get out of that situation safely and without a whole bunch of awkwardness. So I know when I've been on the giving side of that smile um, and in moments of where I, you know, let's say you're in a politically charged situation and somebody says something that you don't have the power in that situation to confront or address, and yet it's problematic one way or another. Um, what, how can we understand in that moment what's happening? Because as I'm recalling it, like a lot of other things here, I'm thinking these are automatic responses that they have. Um, it, it's, not, it's not like I'm in a calculated way thinking all those things through in real time. I'm just experiencing this profound discomfort and this kind of almost like there's an invisible wall between me and taking action. And I'm remember, I'm the one who goes give compliments to strangers on the street. 
I'm not shy. So in those moments, it feels like all these things are happening. How do we make sense of it when it's happening to us? Not never mind when it's happening in front of us. Right. And this is the kind of thing, as you said, you know, there's situations where we kind of just use this kind of fake smile to move the situation over and it applies to all sorts of instances. So it could apply to a situation where, you know, someone is, you know, harassing somebody or us. It can apply to a situation where we hear someone make an inappropriate or racist remark. And we just, instead of actually standing up and speaking up for something, even though we all hope that we would do that in the moment, research shows that many of us wouldn't because it's just so awkward in the moment. And sometimes we do just kind of smile, this half not real smile and nod along. And again, one of the best things that I often advise is having scripts prepared, having sort of uh, something that you know you're gonna say when you find yourself in that situation. Uh, and that can make it easier because a lot of times we're just like, I don't know what to say. And a lot of times there's ambiguity in situations like that. Mm -hmm. We're not sure, does that person really mean that? Was that really a racist comment or was that, you know? And so maybe asking, uh, you know, do you know how that came across? Something like that. That's also, I love that particular response because the other thing that, you know, I hear over and over again from women, I've seen it in my own experiences, and it sounds like it's um, one of the threads that we've through all of this is when do we give people the benefit of the doubt? What's our inclination to trust them, our desire to trust them? And yet at the same time, when alarm bells are going off, that this is actually not okay. And how can we navigate it? Because we not only risk our relationship with that person, but it's also about how we perceive people as a whole. Yeah. And you know what I find so interesting about that comment is that at the same time, one of the things I talk about in the book is that we assume the things we say, people are going to jump down our throats, right? We assume people won't give us the benefit of the doubt, but in fact, many people do. Like that's what we're doing when we kind of smile along. I and mean, part of it is we're, we're feeling awkward. Part of it is we're not sure, but we're also inclined to like give someone the benefit of the doubt. I bet they didn't really mean it like that. And that means people do that for us. And what that means is that even if we say something that could be harmful or offensive to somebody, no one may tell us because they're giving us the benefit of the doubt. We may never know that someone was kind of bothered by something. And so it kind of goes both ways. We also need to sort of be aware of the things that we're saying and how they might be landing on people and whether other people are failing to tell us that we said something wrong. So that's actually a great lead into something. I, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to try and cover it if we can, is explain the concept of face work to us and how that relates to experiences of racism in the workplace. So Irving Goffman is a sociologist who came up with this term called face work. And the idea of face is face is how we present ourselves to the world. And most of us present ourselves to the world as good moral people. And if you sort of challenge someone on that, you're threatening their face. You're threatening the image they are presenting to the world. And what happens is that means that if someone says something that you think is racist or they do something that could be construed as, you know, morally charged, right? And you call them out on that, 
you're challenging them on their face, this presentation that I'm a good moral person. And that makes everybody feel really awkward and embarrassed and ashamed in the end. And so we're very hesitant to do that to other people. And we get really hurt when other people do that to us. And so it makes it really hard to actually speak up when we see situations like this, where we kind of want to say, you know, that wasn't cool because people assume you're basically saying, you know, you're a bad person. And increasingly, hopefully, we're all growing in our ability to recognize these moments and our desire to speak out in those moments, whether it's on our own behalf or somebody else's. Um, so how can we start to approach those moments productively without creating that kind of shame that's only going to activate somebody's defenses? One of the things I often talk about is saying things in a way that protects the other person's face. So if basically the sort of foundation of what most of us want other people to think about us is that we're good moral people, you tell someone, I still think you're a good moral person, right? And I still like you, you know, you're a good person. You're really, you know, great at this and that and the other thing. But I think you might not have realized that something you said could have come across in this way. So something that is face saving for that person, but still gets the point across. And here's the other sort of piece of that is something that is actually direct in getting the point across. So we tend to err on the side of either not saying anything and being too nice about it, right? Or being overly aggressive. So you want to save face and that takes away sort of the aggressive part where someone could get really offended, but you still have to be direct. That thing you said, and then you tell them when you said this, someone could have this. Right. So you can be direct and also sort of safe face for the other person. And they're more likely to react positively to something like that. So once again, it's a case of um, taking some perspective where we don't have time to necessarily get it. Um, try and think about how the other person is going to be open to hearing us by letting them know we see the good things that are there um, and creating that open space so that we can share with them something that we need to express and we need them to hear, but not in a way that is so overwhelming emotionally that they're going to shut down. That's right. That's exactly right. Vanessa, I could talk to you all day. This has been so illuminating. I so loved the book. I so appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, if people want to learn more, how can they find you? How can they find your work? You can go to my website, which is vanessabonds.com and Bonds is B-O-H-N-S. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Prof Bonds and Instagram at Prof Bonds. And you can get the book uh, anywhere pretty much now. It's in stores. Highly recommend it. Readable, informative important. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. And thank you all for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business and me at Laura Zarrow. And our full back catalog is available as a podcast wherever you get yours. Just search on Women at Work and Laura Zarrow and you'll find us. As always, Many thanks to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our fantastic sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.